Whenever I get into any situation, I find out what the ground rules are that everybody obeys. And then I just uh, look at all the opportunities that are available by doing just the opposite. Welcome back to another episode of the Gravity Podcast. I am here today with Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach. And Dan, it's really an honor to have an opportunity to spend some time with you. I've gotten so much out of just knowing you and being a part of Coach and the network. It's really probably uh, sounds dramatic, but it has been truly life-changing to know you and be a part of your world. So thank you for everything, really. Well, thank you. And I just want to say that you've gone right to the top of the list of my dealers of really, really great Irish whiskey. <laughs> well, yes, I aim to please. I, well, I figure I mean, when it comes to Irish whiskey, you go to the top. You did not start in the minor leagues, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I hope you're enjoying it. I, I think when, you, when you're going to um, enjoy certain things, they should be really fine. And that's, that's a really fine whiskey. So, yeah. 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 So, Dan, what I'd love to do is have the listeners who might have read many of your books or know you from a podcast or any number of outlets, but but I don't know how many people really know your full story. And that's really what we've been focusing on with this podcast is to get people to really see the journey of what it takes to end up being as successful as you are. So maybe you could start at the beginning and talk a little bit about your childhood, your family dynamics, your upbringing, and kind of how that started to shape you at an early age. Yeah, well, for those of your listeners that are in, you know, the Columbus area or the Ohio-wide area, I'm a Northern Ohio farm boy. So if you think of Cedar Point, where Cedar Point is, I grew up on a farm about eight miles south of Cedar Point, produce farm. And I'm in my 78th year right now. So I, this was 1944, I was born, and I'm a late child, uh, family of seven, I'm number five. And interestingly enough, my parents are both number five in big families. So my father was, um, my father was the fifth of nine, and my mother was the fifth of seven. And I don't know how... My other siblings look at it, but I just—I I was just born with a great situation in terms of who my parents were, and uh, they gave me a lot of encouragement and they gave me a lot of freedom. And uh, and interestingly enough, I never had a playmate my own age until I was in first grade. So it was six years before. I, and by that time, I had cracked the adult code. <laughs> and the adult code uh, is very, very simple. That as a child, if you just ask adults about their experience, they'll talk to you for hours. <laughs> yeah, so, right. um, you know, when I would meet someone who was, let's say, 40, 50 years older than me, when I was six or seven years old, I said, you know, when you were my age, I'm six years old, when you were my age, what was going on in the world for you? Mm -hmm. Well, whoever gets asked that question by a kid, you know, and mm -hmm. everything else, and I would just pick their brains. And I had a next door neighbor, a woman 78, when I was six, Mrs. Wetzel. And uh, 
Interestingly enough, I mean, she was born in the 1870s, 18, 18, yeah, I think 1870s. And, you know, before all modern conveniences, before electricity, television, radio. And um, and I would just ask her what her life was like growing up. And the, interestingly enough, the house she lived in, she had never been overnight anywhere else in her life. She, she had never been away and mm-hmm. stayed. And But what you began to realize that everybody's got a normal life in terms of their circumstances. And you say, boy, how... Boy, she's sure missing a lot. She didn't miss anything, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody leads a full life, you know, mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of what they have available for them. So, uh, long story short, right off the bat, when I was ten years old, and I think my mother was the coach in my life uh, early. And looking back at it now, I kind of think that she saw herself in me. Except I was a, I was a boy in the 1950s, and she was a girl in the 1920s, and so there were so many more things that I could do that she could do, and I I get a feeling I really got pushed. I really got mm-hmm. pushed by her, mm-hmm. and uh, the two things about that was um, she was passionate about reading, and she said, "You if you learn how to read." You can go anywhere you want with your mind, okay? And so I really mm. got pushed into that, you know, as early as I could. I, I became a great reader. And then the other thing she said when I was 10 years old, she said, you know, you're not going to grow up around here. She said, you're going to finish school. You're going to graduate from high school. But she said, you're not going to grow up around here. She said, so don't get any notion that you're going to settle down here, that you're going to work around here, that you're going to get involved with someone here. You're going out to see the world. And I graduated in, you know, I graduated in June of 1962. And four days later, I was working for the FBI in Washington, D.C. Well, let me back up for a second, Dan. This, um, you said crack the code on adults and and what I heard was uh, curiosity and I'm and what I'm curious about is did you at a young age have a desire to be kind of cracking codes or figuring out kind of what was working and not working in life with other human beings or were you just curious? Were you trying to get something out of the adult? Tell me a little bit more about, yeah, I, think that, I think that's like thing, a big part of who you are. Yeah. Well, I think the big thing, and uh, thanks for the observation on that. Uh, first of all, the world has really changed since, you know, since I was uh, an adolescent. Uh, if um, you wanted to be an adult, I mean, everybody wanted to be an adult, the whole point, uh, you know, of everything. But the, the big thing is that it was easy to under, easier to understand back then what being an adult actually meant. You had enormous role models, you know. And, um, you know, and adults were something that you grew into. Um, adults were not your buddies, okay? Your parents weren't your friends, <laughs> you know, you know. And and the whole notion, you know, that your parents would buddy around with you. I mean, it was just an unknown. I mean, everybody, you know, people talk today, you know, I show up for all my children's events. I never saw my parents at any of my events, mm-hmm. you know. And so my sense is that there was this, this leap that you had to make uh, 
as a child. And when I got to first grade, I had already been talking to adults from about age four and just asking them about their experiences. And when I got to first grade and I ran into all these little people with faces, <laughs> and the thing that I noticed is they, they didn't know anything. They didn't have any experiences. Like the adults that I were talking to had gone, some of them were in the First World War, some of them were in the Great mm-hmm. Depression, some of them were in the Second World War. And they had these great life experiences. Some of them had flown when airplanes were just a new thing. They had driven cars when cars were new things. They had, you know, remembered when radio was introduced. And so they had all these new experiences. And it said that all the really great things were going to have to be things that I traveled and saw for myself. And so that was kind of the code. And it wasn't any one particular adult in particular, but it was these people who had different kinds of experiences. And the other thing... Mm -hmm. I got onto very early, uh, Brett, is that being an adult was not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that there mm-hmm. were lots of things. Uh, it was very complicated. I, I had a sense right from the beginning that being an adult had lots of, um, um, had, had lots of challenges and, and uh, not always were people successful in dealing with their challenges. So I, I got it. Mm-hmm. I got a real sense of that really early in life. But when you think about how I make my living now, you know, and how you've known me, is that I'm basically doing the same activity at age 77 that I was doing at seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. That's what you really jumped out right away is, you know, this is really part of who you are. You have right. this kind of mind and this curiosity and you have, you know, been solving the the any number of different kind of problem or equation or uh, coming up with solutions for uh, for your whole life. It, it sounds mm-hmm. like you. This is almost like something you were born with. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think yeah, it was factory equipped. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. I came mm-hmm. off the assembly line. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with well, it. And and and, and, and the other thing is that I was happy. You know, I mean, I was a happy kid. I mean, I hear mm-hmm. all sorts of horror stories about people's childhoods. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I have to be a pure spectator when I listen to these stories. I mm-hmm. said, uh-huh. mm-hmm. I said, I, I, my mother, um, you know, I when she was 75, she had always wanted to go to Europe. So I took her to Italy. We traveled around in Italy for, you know, two and a half weeks. And uh, I might have... T- said something for the first half hour, but it was nonstop her talking for two weeks, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and I just learned things about her. And this wasn't her as my mother. This was her as Agnes Sullivan, Agnes Gashaw, her last name was, Mm -hmm. maiden name was Gashaw. And, uh, and she was just talking about her teenage years and growing up and Mm -hmm. uh, everything and things about the early beginning of her relationship with my father and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, um, and on both sides, I have to tell you the relatives on both sides, her family and my father's are just toxic, totally Mm -hmm. toxic. And my mother and father were like immigrants because they, they, Cleveland was basically the home base where Mm -hmm. both sides, and they moved 60 miles to the West farm country. And I have to tell you, 
moving 60 miles in the 1940s, it was like moving, the, you know, it was like moving 500 miles away today or a mm-hmm. thousand miles. And I think they're immigrants. They're like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I see them as immigrants and mm-hmm. they immigrated so that their children would not be affected by their extended families. Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought it was really heroic. You know, I, I thought they mm-hmm. were very heroic and they, mm-hmm. you know, I thought they were very brave and uh, incredibly good-willed people. They're very mm-hmm. fair, very good-willed, but really busy. Really, really, yeah. really busy. You know, I've kind of, you know, in doing this podcast, I generally hear one of two stories, either a traumatic childhood that really did end up shaping the individual, maybe oftentimes very challenging, but comes out on the other side and creates some something from that. Or unconditionally loving, happy uh, is kind of the other, you know, of, of kind of uh, successful people. And I'm wondering just in this kind of idea of them immigrating, um, you know, moving away from the toxic family, the farm life, and you describing your life as happy. And I'm hearing like, a lot of curiosity and a lot of room just to kind of explore, to read. I'm wondering, you know, in an in a even simpler time, in a simpler place, just how important maybe that is to, you know, kind of discovering life and to discovering yourself and learning about human beings. And may, maybe we've gotten away from that too much. Well, uh, you know, I think that, uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, um, Brett, we get to have discussions and we get to talk about things that's in pretty rare atmosphere. You know, when you think about uh, what you've done with your life and created your own business and created your own your own life. And I've done the same, but everybody in Strategic Coach is somewhere on that path. You know, everybody's on that path. This, this is really rarefied error. I mean, uh, uh, that we're talking about. We we get to talk about things that other people can't even bring this up. They, mm-hmm. We get to talk about things that other people don't even allow themselves to think about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And the reason is, is because um, the, the driving motivator for all of us is freedom. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, and the first thing that none of us could stand was anyone else controlling our time. Right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I just find it totally intolerable that anyone else should control my control my time. Like I can yeah. kind of feel it a little bit during COVID because to a certain extent, the government is controlling mm-hmm. your, your time. And, um, you know, and my feeling is that there's going to be an incredible backlash coming in the in the political structures throughout the just talking about the United States here, they have mm-hmm. no idea of the backlash that's coming against all the crap that they put up with, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And you yeah. can feel it that the the people at top are really scared. They're very, very scared mm-hmm. about what people are thinking about and what people mm-hmm. are th- thinking about do. But this will never happen again. This mm-hmm. will never happen again. And I think that there's a fair resonance between entrepreneurism as a way of making a living and just what you expect your life to be if you're born American. You know, there, mm-hmm. there, I think there's a, a tremendous resonance between entrepreneurism and Americanism. So I just 
finished a book. This is my next quarterly book that's called American Happiness. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we just uh, finished um, the uh, audio recording and we just finished the video recording and we're just basically putting the, um, you know, finishing touches on the copy and finishing touches on the design. And that'll, that'll be out in late, late November. And uh, the, uh, the thing that I, I, I've gotten very much uh, uh, in touch with is just how incredibly American I am. Even though I've lived outside of the United States for two-thirds of my life, you take everything into account, my military you know, I was drafted during Vietnam. I was overseas. I've traveled. And uh, I've lived in Toronto 50 years now. I, I uh-huh. moved. And um, and people ask me, why, why do you live in Toronto? And I said, well, first of all, you know, we all find a place that kind of suits us in life. You know, I don't, I don't care where it is you suit place. But it kind of gives me a little bit of detachment from because I'm not in the soup. I mean, if you're involved in America, America is a very intense experience. I mean, there's nothing, mm-hmm. there's nothing passive and peaceful about living in America. I can tell mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And and but what you have to realize that this the United States represents the greatest bet in human history. And I want to talk about that because yeah. uh, I think you're a better and I think I'm a better. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. And, and what I mean by that is, and the way I describe the United States, because I said this is the most unique country uh, in history. That's how I start the book. And uh, I'm telling this as part of my life story because I, I think I've really uh, spent my life kind of exploring what it means uh, to actually be happy as an American. I, mm-hmm. I, I think if I have a central theme to my life is what it means to be happy as an American. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I have to tell you that the best crack at being a happy American is to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. T- totally. Okay. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so yeah. you go back to the declaration with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I said the, the confusing part about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is that uh, some people think that happiness should be guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm-hmm. it's, it's pursuit of happiness. You get the right to pursue happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no guarantee. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I say that the U.S. is a unique country from this standpoint, exceptional country. Nothing ever in history like it. And never again will there be another country like it. It's the only country that bet its national future on unpredictable individuals betting on their futures. So it's a double bet. Mm-hmm. In other words, the country's going to bet that there's going to be a certain number of individuals who bet on their future. And the, the founders of the country were betting the mm-hmm. country's future on there being a certain number of people who bet on their own future. And mm-hmm. those individuals betting on their future were going to create all sorts of new things that were useful for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I had never thought about it that way, but you're right. I mean, certainly when you think, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm going to agree with you because that's been my life experience. Um, but I hadn't really thought about kind of it being founded on that bet 
um, it's an interesting thing. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of your path into being an entrepreneur. You mentioned you went into the FBI, the military. Talk a little bit about kind of your early career, pre-coach, and, and kind of how you became an entrepreneur. Yeah, well, 62, um, no, my family didn't have any money. I mean, you didn't have any money for schooling in those days. And uh, and not many people went to college, by the way. Uh, when I was in first grade, only 7% seven, 7 of the American population had any experience with uh, education beyond high school. I mean, high school was the big deal. You know, you finished high school. That was that was a big deal. And and so in 62, my high school principal's brother was um, um, the agent in charge in Cleveland for the FBI. And every year they could recommend certain number of jobs for the Cleveland office or for the headquarters in D.C. And I, you know, my I had marching orders. Remember I had marching. My mother said, end of high school, you're out of here. So I had to think about it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. How do I do this without money? You know, and mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, and uh, uh, the, you know, I talked to the principal, but he was an adult. Like I would talk to the principal. I would talk to my teachers. The mm -hmm. other students wouldn't talk to them because they were, you know, up there. I said, well, these are, I mean, you're depriving yourself of <laughs> knowledge of the world. These people have actually been out there. And our high school principal had been in the Marine Corps. You know, he had been in uh, Korea uh, with the Marines and uh, everything. And then his, you know, his brother-in-law was an FBI agent and he had been all these experiences. And this was a really interesting experience. So I got a job, you know, a very menial job, pulling files and uh, returning files. And uh, at the same time, I was very interested in theater, but uh, I've always uh, really, really liked uh, presentations where there's kind of a magic to the presentation. So I have, mm -hmm. uh, I have sort of natural theater inclinations. And so I, uh, actually, the university in Washington, D.C., Catholic University, uh, you know, that was one of the three biggest um, universities. Yale being the second one in Northwestern in Chicago. These were the three universities that were known for their theater programs. So I uh, worked nights at uh, the FBI from around 11 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the morning. And then, uh, then I went to school. <laughs> and, you know, part-time. I wasn't going full-time. And then I'd get some sleep and I did that. And I did that for two years and I just got really tired. I got really, mm -hmm. really tired out. So uh, in the back of my mind, since I was 10 years old, there was a uh, program um, that really intrigued me because I had been through Boy Scouts. I had been a Boy Scout uh, as a, you know, a teenager. And there's this program out of Great Britain called Outward Bound. And a lot of people know about it today. You know, a lot, mm -hmm. lot of coach clients have children who have been off to mm -hmm. Outward Bound. A lot of coach clients have been to out, uh, Outward Bound. And it's an outdoor leadership school is the best way I can. Outdoor, uh, outdoor leadership and learning how to have teamwork under very challenging circumstances. Okay. And so in 64... I just decided I, I quit the FBI and I didn't go back to school. I saved my money 
and off to England I went. And I went to this program in Scotland for a month. And um, it was terrific. I mean, it was everything I wanted it to be. And I came back and I said, okay, now go back and get another job. And it's kind of interesting that in America, you know, uh, I, I was talking to the British students, you know, who were, everybody was a Brit uh, except me. I was the only American. The other thing, I was the only person who was there by my own decision. Everybody else had been sent by either a corporation or by the legal services. You know, this is a corrective, you know, and, uh, and, and I'm the only one who paid my own way, okay? And I won the student of the course. There's a top student in the course out of 72. I went out to dinner and the head, the head person at the school uh, said, uh, we, he said, we knew you were going to be the top student before you even arrived. And, <laughs> and I said, how'd you know that? And he says, because you're the only person who decided to be here on your own. And you're the mm-hmm. only person who paid your own way. Mm-hmm. You had mm-hmm. to, you had mm-hmm. to be the best student because you're the one who was most invested up front. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't care what you remember from Outward Bound, but those two decisions, that it's your decision and you pay your own way, he says, if you just stick to that, you're going to have a great life. Mm. Wow. <laughs> you got your money's worth right there. Yeah. 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 And he said, we've never had anyone like you. I was curious about that because, you know, yes, I'm familiar with Outward Bound and and a lot of my friends and their kids have done it. Usually it's something where it's like the parents want you to go do something and they've heard it's good and you have to be busy in the summertime or something along those lines, right? It'll be good for you. you. You you found this on your own. When yeah, I was he, 10 years old, by the way. I, that's when you I, discovered it? It was in Sports Illustrated. It was an article in wow. Sports Illustrated when I was 10. I cut it out, you know, uh, had, you know, I had a scrapbook and I put it in my scrapbook. And when I got to the end of those two years of working nights and going to school part time, I mean, I was really, I was just really tired out. Mm-hmm. And I said, I just need a break from this. And, you know, so I said, time to do this. And I wrote away. And what's really interesting is that uh, at that time, they had already started schools in the United States. I think it was at Hurricane Island in, uh, in uh, uh, Maine. I think there's an island off Maine. And they had an American school, and they never told me they had an American school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, I went over, and I, I, I will tell you uh, this, Brad, and uh, I don't think I've really... Uh, revealed this in Strategic Coach that month at Outward Bound. And it was very physically demanding. Uh, we were mountain climbing and we were on the sea sailing. And this is November and December on the North Sea. This is, these are not ideal, ideal conditions. Uh, and, but the teamwork that was required that if I had to pick one experience in life that it most expresses itself, in the way we approach strategic coach, I would say it was that month in Outward Bound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Tell, tell me more about that. What is it that really has you f- see those that connection between the two? Well, the big thing is, um, is that you operate as a six-person team. So they have 12 six-person teams. Mm-hmm. And they have a rule that uh, whatever 
expedition you're on or whatever cruise you're on, uh, you you can only go as far as every member of the team goes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if one, uh, a team member sprains his ankle, that's the end of the expedition for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you really have to take care of your team members. Okay, mm-hmm. and there was this one guy who uh, I'm a I'm a uh, I'm a great lifter physically. I'm very very strong. Uh, I can really really lift, and um, and so I was noticing that he was having trouble because you have you carry four or five days of supplies on your back with tents and you know sleeping bags and everything like that, and it's not the lightweight stuff. Uh, that they have, uh, you know, now this was heavy, heavy gear. And um, so um, I was noticing he's having trouble. I said, I'll take your bag. He said, I said, I'll take your bag. I said, mm-hmm. you, you just work on getting yourself up there. I'll get your bag up there. Mm-hmm. And I did that about four or five times during the trip. And I said, mm-hmm. don't, don't you worry about it. I said, we're a team and we're all going to arrive there mm-hmm. at the end. And, you know, and, you know, if you think about it, entrepreneurism uh, to get started involves an extraordinary amount of individualism. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, the, the decision to be an entrepreneur requires an amount of individual self-direction and self-confidence that very few people have. Yeah, I mean, they can be summa cum laude at Harvard Business School, and they don't have what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's. But at a certain yeah. point of being an entrepreneur, if you're not capable of teamwork, uh, you, uh, you've just created a job for yourself because it's just going to be, uh, you know, it's just going to be a unpleasant lifetime job, you know, where you have to go home with the boss every. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and, and everything like that. So I got fused into this teamwork thing uh, at that thing. Yeah, I said, mm-hmm. yeah, it's about individualism, and you know, you got to know what you're about, and you got to know what your ambitions are, and everything else. But I said, you don't go anywhere unless you surround yourself with a team. So that's why mm-hmm. I talk about it, you know, as being so crucial to strategic coach because entrepreneurism has this stereotype image of rugged individualism and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people who just drive other people. And I said, no, 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 that's not yeah. how it works. That's not it, how it, works. It, it doesn't actually work that way. Not not sustainable, at least. It's um, what we tell other people so that they don't become entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, no, no. You don't want to go this, this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me, Dan, a little bit about kind of then your first step into being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So uh, uh, I'm just going to uh, uh, skip to two or three more life experience. So I come back mm-hmm. in early 65 and the Vietnam War breaks out in April. And what they did, the draft was in place and they just started with 25-year-olds and went downward. And so I was uh, 21 and uh, I got called up right away this was uh, i think the summons came and uh came in uh draft summons came in may and i was in boot camp in fort knox kentucky in july and um then i got uh, you have secondary training which is called ait and that was in fort dix new jersey and then you get your 
you get your, you know, where are you going to spend the rest of your career? It's only two years. So the mm-hmm. draft is two years. So that, that takes up pretty well the first six months. So then uh, I was sent to South Korea. So I spent two years in South Korea. And uh, through a series of neat things that I did on my own of volunteering. So whenever I get into any situation, I find out what the ground rules are that everybody obeys. And then I just uh, look at all the opportunities that are available by doing just the opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in the army, when you get into the army, and this would be true, never volunteer for anything. Okay, so I heard that first day, second day, never volunteer for anything, never volunteer for anything. You're an idiot mm-hmm. if you volunteer for anything. Mm-hmm. This is a tax on your time. They've just taken you away from your life. You're already paying, you know, you don't volunteer, you don't give them anything extra. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through the first day, I said, I wonder what happens when you do volunteer. <laughs> I said, uh-huh. if nobody does this and you're the uh-huh. only one to volunteer, I said, yeah. I, I bet it's pretty negotiable. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like your point of talking people out of being an entrepreneur. Or I've heard you say um, that uh, you love to watch the news because uh, that's where you see all the solutions. Wherever there are problems, you <laughs> yeah. see solutions. So it is a little bit that you have this counter, kind of sense of counterintuitive, right? Yeah, yeah, it's counterintuitive. And uh, so long story short, my theater experience came back in handy. Uh, I had had enough in university and I'd done some, you no know, actual, you know, practical theater work and I had skills. And uh, because of a the Army's inability to fill a key position with a civilian. It was a civilian job. Uh, uh, it was essentially running the entertainment program for about half of South Korea. Okay, and, and, and you know, South Korea was a supply depot for Vietnam. It, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, a, you know, military unit. They had to patrol the line with North, uh, North Korea. You know, there was... There was always the possibility of fighting up there, but we were um, uh, a long distance uh, away from that. But you had, you know, you had 15,000 soldiers doing something or other. Plus you had the Air Force and you had Navy who were, um, you know, part of the scheme. So I would arrange for the USO shows. And then I had a theater and fortunately in the camp that I was, they had advisory groups and advisory groups could bring their families with them. So there were mothers or children. And uh, so you could put on really good plays. So I put on, you know, in about a year, I put on about five plays, you know, mm-hmm. little big, mm-hmm. small. And, um, and it was fortunate because I got to do everything. I got to be set designer. I got to be costume designer. I got to be the producer. I got to be the director. I got to be the salesperson, you know, the marketer for the thing. And I got to act, you know, I got to act and I got it out of my system. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm really happy for it because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in our unique ability, when we talk about the four levels of activity, there's incompetent. You don't want to be doing incompetent things. And then there's things where you're just confident and you don't mm-hmm. really want to be doing that. You don't want to be known for being competent. Okay. <laughs> and then there's excellent skills. There's excellent skills and you're really good at it, but you don't really have a passion for it. You're really just naturally good, uh, good for, you know, you, you just do this very, very easily. Mm-hmm. And the, the fourth level is unique ability. This is where you're, 
uniquely good, but you you also have a passion for it. Have a passion for it, and that's the sweet spot, you know, in, in life. And uh, I would say theater skills are an excellent skill with me. Okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm I'm really good at a lot of it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I've got a real feel for it, and I know how to, you know, insert entertainment, and and you know, I know how to package it, and I know how to structure it, and thing. Couldn't do it for a living, you know. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it for a living, and I wouldn't be, you know, I'd be an okay person in the theater world, okay, uh, but. Uh, Great skills to have, very, very important skill sets. So I came back, and here's where a lot of me can be seen by the decision I made. So I came back, I'm 20, I'm 23 years old. I had two years in the Army, and I came back. And I, I read something, this is like my outward bound thing. I read about this college in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, called St. John's, which is right across from the Naval Academy, a little college. 1696, that's been the college since. It's the second or third oldest college in the United States. And in the 30s, they had um, changed their entire curriculum just to read the great books of the Western world. Okay. So I, and they start with the Greeks and move right up till the 20th century. And it's four years. And uh, uh, there's no choice about what you do there. There's one elective at St. John's. You can elect to go to St. John's or go someplace else. Okay. And so I just spent four years reading the great books of the Western world. And part of the reason, I just want to know where ideas came from, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when I read the news these days, uh, about 90% of news uh, these days are dealing with ideas that have been around for a couple of thousand years. You know, mm-hmm. and I I just find it uh, comforting not to get hooked on what some people think is brand new thought. And I said, this is not a brand new thought. This is just, this, this is like last week's leftovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that is comforting to um, know that this is not something that's so uh, unique and potentially uh, more damaging than it really is when you oh, know no. it's been around a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and you can kind of get a sense of big trends that are happening. I think we're in the middle of one. I think we're uh, probably in the history of the United States. We're in probably uh, one of the third biggest um, areas of change, political, social, cultural, economic, technological change. And uh, Uh, they happen, well, first of all, the, you know, the founding of the country was one of them. So that could be number one. Then you had the, the civil war, which was really a decision, you know, uh, yeah, you can't have two different societies inside of a country and grow. Mm -hmm. There's got to be, and one of them's got to win, you know. And the other thing about the United States, it's strictly a winner loser society. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. this whole notion of getting rewarded for participation, that's not an American idea. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't yeah. get rewarded for showing up. You don't get rewarded for putting in the time. You don't get rewarded for uh, participating. You get rewarded for winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that that's true. No doubt about it. Dan, tell me a little bit about kind of, uh, I know you had... An, an entrepreneurial venture pre-coach. 
that I've heard you talk about. And I want to, um, just in the interest of your time, I want to, I want to hear that story before we talk about coach and, and certainly, you know, gap and gain and all the amazing tools. Tell me a little bit about that kind of pre-coach experience in business for yourself. Yeah, well, there wasn't a thing called coaching in the business world. Mm-hmm. So uh, after college, I graduated. And again, I, I knew exactly what I was going to do afterwards. And I got a job as a copywriter with a big global uh, advertising agency because I was a writer and I was an artist. Okay, so and th- that came out of theater skills and at St. John's, they didn't have a college newspaper. So I created the college newspaper and it forced me to write something every week, an editorial every week. And so, uh, and the army taught me how to type, by the way, I got typing in the army. Great, 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 important lifetime skill. Okay. And so anyway, I got this job in Toronto, you know, and in those days, if you had a letter from an employer that said, I'm offering a job like that, you walked across the border. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, you, you had the equivalent of a green card, Canadian green card, in about four weeks after you walked across the border, you know. And, uh, and Toronto's uh, an amazing city. It's, um, um, it's kind of like the nowhere city. And what I mean by that, it's like nowhere else you've ever been in your life because of 60%. We're at 6 million right now. It's, big, it's a big city. 6 million, uh, 60%. You know, so that's 3.6 million. Weren't born in Canada. So they're from everywhere in the world. And it's kind of close to the United States, but it's not American. No, so mm-hmm. it's, an inter- it's an interesting place. Very peaceful. It's very clean. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, but it, it ha- it's, it's what it isn't that makes it interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It isn't New York. I mean, it's kind of like New York run by the Swiss, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, crime, uh, serious crime is littering, you know, a littering mm-hmm. is uh, walking on the wrong side of the escalator. That's uh, that's a major crime. <laughs> anyway. That's so, nice. so anyway, I came up there and I had three years of writing and um, really taught you about deadline because the advertising business is about constant manic deadlines. And I, I really appreciated, you know, being able to respond to deadlines. You know, it's a real skill. A lot of people can't take deadlines, but I, I really love deadlines. And, uh, and then I got the idea that I could coach. So my early tracking the code on adults that I had in childhood came back to me. And I said, you know, we're going through a lot of change right now. So uh, the you know, the whole concept of the microchip was just starting to happen. And I, I started reading about the impact that this new technology, and it was going to unsettle everything. So this is in the early 70s, 74, that the next 50 years was just going to be this massive unsettling. Uh, and uh, and there was going to be a lot of creation of new entrepreneurial activities. And I said, well, I said, there isn't any particular product or service that I'm interested in, but I am very, very interested in asking questions of people who are doing the new products and services and just Mm -hmm. asking them how they're thinking about what they're doing. And out of that, uh, you know, 
So uh, when you say my pre-strategic coach uh, mm-hmm. thing, there was 15 years where I was just a one-on-one question asker mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. of entrepreneurial people. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, Brad, I probably had, um, you know, uh, a, a major strategic coach tool uh, that let us start strategic coach was the strategy circle. And that developed out of my thinking. And here, I just developed this process. I, I would just sit with someone and I say, um, Brett, if this was three years from today, you know, this is October and this is 2024, and we're having a conversation and you're looking back from that point in the future back to now, what's got to happen in your life personally and professionally and personally? What's got to happen for you to be happy with your progress? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, it's not what kind of progress you have to make. It's what kind of progress will make you happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And out of that, just universes got expressed. People would talk about their universes. And I said, what if we just check up on this every 90 days? Mm-hmm. And so I get the first plan started and then we come back and I ask them how things are doing. And every, every 90 days progress would be made and, I would write it down. I would document it, give them a big sheet to show them what the game plan was. And I did that for 15 years, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and so I had the essence of what my business was, but I didn't have any backstage business skills like cash flow mm-hmm. and keeping track of my details and finances. So, Sorry, I, Dan, let me just ask you, I'm curious about this. Were you at that point thinking that you did want to turn something into a business or? No, no, was, it was a business. I mean, it was, I was a business. Yeah. I was incorpor- I, you know, I was incorporated right off the bat. Uh-huh. And I, and I knew I would never go back. I know I, you know, when I left the ad agency, um, uh, my creative director who had, you know, he thought a lot of me and I, you know, I was, I was good. It, it was like, I had excellent advertising skills. Yeah. Not well, my, I, I guess what I'm interested in is, you know, I don't know of anything like coach, um, today, let alone when you started. And I'm wondering like, what had you, um, believe that there was something here um, did you have anything to kind of point to as a, well, they're doing this or I'm doing, there's, did you, did you kind of take from anything else as a model or was there inspiration somewhere yeah. or was it yeah, just it your life one, experience? One insight, uh, mm-hmm. the one insight that I thought differentiated what I would do from everything else that all the coaching I saw, the coach had the answers. Mm. And the coach was giving the answers for the other person to follow. And my insight was the client has all the answers, Mm -hmm. but -hmm. they can't access the answers unless they have my questions. Gotcha. Okay. And And, that was it. And I have to tell you, I had that insight and, you know, uh, confidently enough that I could go into the marketplace Mm-hmm. by my own in 1974. And I've told thousands of other coaches this and they say, yeah, but you have to have the right answers. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? They just ignore everything, uh, everything mm-hmm. they uh, say. You know, why do I want to know? Wh- wh- why do I want to know what they think about things that don't bring me cash flow? 
Mm-hmm. And I said, no, 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 it's not about that. It's not. I said, not, rule number one, it's not about you. <laughs> right, right, right. So I've just constantly gone after what's in the, what's in people's minds. And uh, if I can get them to say it, and then I can write it down, I can draw diagrams of it and everything else, they think differently. They make, mm-hmm. they, 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 that they, they have a basis for measuring, you know, are they on the right track? Are they, mm-hmm. are they making progress? Are they making progress that makes them happy and everything else? Mm-hmm. And I don't need to know any of it. I don't need mm-hmm. to know any of it. I just have to ask questions so that they know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, and I've seen you do this and and um and I've had this experience too and I'm curious just to kind of hear you articulate it. What happens though when people are talking and this maybe goes back to your early childhood curiosity with adults when they are talking they might not even know it but you're learning something that then you end up creating a whole nother tool, series of questions. I mean, like a whole nother thing opens up because of something they said they didn't even know <clears throat> they were saying, right? I mean, that that is that part of how coach has evolved for you is yeah, by I think being the other with thing, other people? I mean, uh, yeah, it's the repetition. So one of the things mm-hmm. I believe in is that you have to have a method that can be infinitely repeated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every time you come back with the, through another repetition cycle, you add more depth of understanding to it because what you're collecting is experiences. And you see that there's an area where the, the individual is just completely unique. I mean, they're just, they're just in mm-hmm. their own world, but there's also areas where People like them have a lot in common. Okay. So there's an 80 20. I called it an 80 20. And I say, where the person's really unique, this is not reproducible. Okay. But there's an 80% of how they have to go about profiting from their uniqueness, uh, you know, actually mm-hmm. being productive with their uniqueness. That, that's a common skill. You know, that's a common skill. So entrepreneurism, is the eighty percent? There's a there's just an eighty percent to being an entrepreneur that it, it works like math. You know, it mm-hmm. works like mathematics. Anybody can learn math. The only question is, you're twenty percent uh, unique enough that it would uh, it, it, you could really make your mark. You could create your own market. You could create your mm-hmm. own niche, and everything like that. So mm-hmm. you just have to go through a lot of these. And I, I would say from 1974 to 89, I had had about 200 very, very successful one-on-one relationships, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, making great money, but I was selling time. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you have to realize that I, I was making good money. Uh, you know, I was, I, I was making good money, but there was an upper limit in terms of my time. Mm-hmm. And Babs, by that time I had met, you know, the great breakthrough in my life, which is meeting Bab Smith. Mm-hmm. And Babs is, uh, I had been through one marriage, my practice marriage, as I call it. <laughs> and uh, I had gone bankrupt a couple of times because of receivables. And that mm-hmm. was a great lesson for me. Never have receivables. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I said, we're going to treat this like the movie business. Mm-hmm. When you pay for the movie, on the way in or on the way out? Right. <laughs> and, and so... 
So since 84, I've lived in a non-receivables world. That really simplifies life enormously, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And then Babs uh, had her own business and she um, said, you know, I'd rather be part of your business and be partner with you in your business. We were married in 86 and we started the current strategic coach program in 89. So mm-hmm. You're, mm-hmm. you're 32. You're 32. <laughs> Um, right now, but uh, everything I've told you about um, my thinking about this, mm-hmm. that all the answers are in your head, mm-hmm. but you don't have the questions to get the answers. I have the questions to get the answers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't need to know anything about what's going on in your head. I just have to ask the right question and let you... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, it comes back to that, you know, thing you learned at a very young age, you know, learning from adults, getting them to talk. Dan, there's so much um, in my mind right now that you've shared already um, that I'd love for the audience to to hear more about. Um, but we don't have time to do that, but I just am struck by uh, unique ability you know, this 20%, I mean, the, the power of being in the 20% and really driving value through passion um, and excellence, the um, self-managed company, you know, the strategy circle, the DOS question. I mean, these tools that have come to you in these 32 years are really incredible in this pursuit of happiness, you know, yeah. that, that's really, and, and I guess I, I want to make sure we talk about the gap and the gain um, yeah. because, you know, when we talk about pursuit of happiness and being happy and, you know, what you've said to me is you were a happy kid and um, your memory of childhood was happy. And I, I experience you as a happy person. Um, you know, you've created a life for yourself that is really about how you want to live and being with the people you want to be with and the places you want to be doing the things that you love, that you're great at. And at this point, it's not about really driving money value. It's a matter of continuing that pursuit of happiness. So maybe you could just expand on that and the concept of Gap and Gain, this book, which is coming out. I'm lucky Mm -hmm. enough to have a advanced copy. I love this concept and I'd love to just have you spend some time talking about it. Just a couple of basic things about that, that the pursuit of happiness is an activity, but it's not a reward. Okay. So, uh, so I will draw a picture and, you know, I've got a square and in the lower left-hand corner, I've got a small circle in the upper right-hand corner, I've got a big circle, and then I have a straight line with an arrow uh, connecting the two circles. And I said, now in the small the small circle, write the word here, H-E-R-E, and in the big circle, uh, write the, the word bigger, bigger type right there, T-H-E-R-E. And I said, how many of you, this is a snap photo of any time in your life that you're here and you're trying to get there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, um, so if you keep doing this, try, you're here and trying to get there for 50 years, um, will you be there? I said, no. What you'll have is a really strong habit of always being here, but not being there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I said, so this is how pursuit of happiness, happiness is up in the upper right-hand corner. 
and this is where you are. You're not happy, but you know when you get to there, you'll be happy, except your habit is never getting there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the big thing is that progress that you can be happy with has to be measured backward. You cannot measure progress forward. You can only measure progress backward. Mm-hmm. And it's a skill that's not learned. Mm-hmm. It's not a skill that's learned. And because, you know, as a child, you're motivated. You know, if you do this and this and this, mm-hmm. boy, then, mm-hmm. you, then, then you'll really be happy. Your parents are, if I do this, that don't mm-hmm. be really. As soon as I get them all out of the, school, out of the house, I'm going to be happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. hope, mm-hmm. hope I don't have to visit them in prison. <laughs> That'll make me mm-hmm. happy. And everything. But it doesn't because happiness is not a destination. Happiness is a daily experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what I realized that the fundamental skill that's the basis of all happiness is just what you do on a daily basis. And so at the end, uh, so I'm just going to give you what the activity is that I found really snaps people into the right way of measuring their progress and being happy is that at the end of every day, before you go to sleep, you say, what were my three wins for the day? Three things that mm-hmm. um, when I look at them, these really moved me forward. Okay, you get those. Mm-hmm. And you say, now, as I look at tomorrow, what are three more things that are kind of like that, but even bigger and better? Okay, mm-hmm. okay. We find that children can basically get this down pat by the time they're five or six years old. Okay, if you have an evening uh, kind of experience and dinner, family dinner, together is a good way to do it. And everybody mm-hmm. reports, you know, at five or six, it's just one thing, but within about, by the time they're six or seven, they can get their three things. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're learning all sorts of other things. You know, they know how to play video games. They can certainly learn how to review their day, mm-hmm. uh, that review their day. And that just locks in that every day is a winning day. Mm-hmm. And you're looking forward to tomorrow to be even more of a winning day. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what happens with a person does that, they stop comparing themselves to other people. They mm-hmm. stop comparing themselves to images in the movies. They stop comparing mm-hmm. themselves to adver- commercials and advertisements. They, mm-hmm. st- they stop listening to social media mm-hmm. they, because they have their own basis for comparison. And you are your only basis for comparison. Mm-hmm. It's who you were this morning, and you've improved on it by this evening. Okay. This is human. I'm not talking about entrepreneurs here. This is just being a human being. Every human being has a day to work with. You know, it's one thing that every human being gets every day. They get a, a day to live and it's either a winning day or a losing day. And there, there is no neutral day. Mm-hmm. If, if your day wasn't a winning day and that's conscious on your part, it's probably going to be a losing day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's, um, People really don't take enough uh, of this always measure backward really seriously. You know, it, it can kind of sound like, I don't know, you know, this kind of thing that maybe you do to make yourself feel better. But, but really the, the gap where you're measuring forward and you're never there is a, a really almost like a disease mindset that really inhibits you from being 
what you're capable of being or having the experience, I should say, it's probably not even being uh, capable of being something else. That's maybe even measuring for it. It's the experience of being happy. Yep. It, it is, and, and really, if that's what we're after, then you know this is really important. Well, yeah. And the thing is, and going back to the, you know, the Declaration of Independence, Life, Liberty, I mean, it's totally understanding that, um, you know, the country can protect people's lives, you know, and it's considered extremely abnormal in the United States. And we have cities now where, you know, because they've let the groups riot and they've uh, disadvantaged the police, they're not guaranteeing life, Okay. And then, you know, they're going through various things where we're being restricted and it's interfering with our liberty, okay, right now, okay? So um, this is, um, you know, they'll get thrown out of power. I mean, the people who allowed this to happen within the next five to 10 years, they'll all be thrown out of power Mm -hmm. at the city level, state level, and Mm -hmm. at the national level, okay? You can't fool around with life and liberty. That's guaranteed in the contract, okay? Mm -hmm. And, and then, but pursuit of happiness is the tricky one. And you have to understand that uh, this was Jefferson. Jefferson was the copywriter here. And uh, Jefferson was one of the most remarkable human beings of his time and one of the most remarkable people in, in American history. But I don't get any sense from reading his life that he was a happy person. Mm. Okay. I think mm. he was pursuing happiness. And he was sharing, you know, that you have to allow people, if they're going to have any chance of happiness, to pursue it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the United States made a bet on American individuals pursuing happiness, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but how you get there, uh, that's, that, that's not written, that's not mm-hmm. written in. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say my experience is because I, didn't have to pursue happiness. I was born happy. Okay. I was born happy. It took me a long time to figure out that, um, that the whole trick of my life was just expanding the happiness I already had, mm-hmm. you know, in other words, include other people in my happiness. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have Babs and we lead a very happy life mm-hmm. and, uh, all the individuals that I'm in teamwork with in my company, it's a, it's a really ha- it's a really mm-hmm. neat thing. If you get a chance to work with Dan, it's going to be a really happy experience, you know, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and everything else. And then clients, you're one of them that I get closer to. I'm not all the clients, you know, have a direct relationship with me. Mm-hmm. And I try to make I tried to make the experience a really happy experience. Mm-hmm. But everything starts with this one thing. Uh, we don't, you don't have any chance at happiness unless you learn how to measure progress backwards. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, measure, it's really, measuring against the future, measuring forward, which always puts you in the gap. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. You always put you in the gap. Measuring backward, no matter how small or insignificant it is, always puts you in the gain. So I call, mm-hmm. and this is the, I think, probably the single most fundamental skill that all human beings have to learn. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, And that's, um, I'm just sitting here thinking about power of collaboration, who not how, which was your last book with Ben Hardy. I mean, this this collaboration with Ben Hardy uh, is a phenomenal example. Your marriage and business partner 
ship. I mean, phenomenal example of, of bringing people in and together, right? If you have like-minded people that care about the same things, that want the same stuff, that want to be happy, which really is probably everybody, but some people are in different spots with it, but you've yeah. created uh, an environment. And you know what I, what I love about kind of all the tools in Coach is they're simple. It's it's um, not easy for people to do this work. You know, a concept like gap and gain, it's easy to fall into the gap. Um, it's very hard to, uh, but this is simple, digestible. Anybody can do this work, and collectively, when you do it, and I, again, I, I mean, I, I really sincerely have so much gratitude for what I've learned. It's you know, again, people might think it sounds dramatic or. Uh, cliche or something, but it, it's really transformed my life by learning these simple tools, uh, a self-managed company, time management system, unique ability, uh, you know, who not how. I mean, they're massive game changing to how you experience yeah. life. Uh, and yeah. it's really great, Dan. Yeah. I just want to uh, finish my, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I have a word that I picked up when I went mm-hmm. to the Great Books College that uh, I think is right at the center of um, whether I think I'm doing good or I'm not doing good. And the, the wor- word is axiom, A-X-I-O-M. And mm-hmm. uh, an axiom is something that is self-evident. In other words, that when you... Uh, when you hear it, you say, well, that's self-evident. No proof is needed. And so what I strive for with all my tools, yeah, like, uh, and probably the simplest, uh, you know, the simplest axiom mm-hmm. we've come up with in the 32 years of co- the, the coach program is who, not how, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'll say to somebody, you know, well, uh, you know, the solution is who, not how, right? And they say, oh, that's who not how mm-hmm. who the hell the, the hell yeah when you have a goal and you really want the what don't don't uh, get yourself involved in having the 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 doing the how find a who who does the how that gets you what mm-hmm. you want what you want and they say oh that's crazy so uh, the who not how book and that's my uh, first collaborative book with Ben Hardy and Ben's just a phenomenal collaborator. You know, and he's got a market style for, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, a major market. I don't have that style. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little too simple <laughs> in what I do. And, uh, but I was looking at the reviews on Amazon. We got about 1,200 on uh, Amazon. And we're, uh, the sweet spot for five-star reviews on Amazon is somewhere between 4.2 and 4.7 stars. And we're right about 4.6. So we're... Mm-hmm. We're doing really well, but uh, they show you how many stars you've, you know, number of five stars, four stars, three stars, two stars, one star. And I had one, one star. I said, one star, <laughs> one star. I said, who is it? So I, I, I found out who the person is and they said, you don't have to read the book. The answer's on the cover. <laughs> That's great. And I said, <laughs> That's a six star. 
we'll just sell cover. We'll just sell covers next time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, and I and he says, yeah, it's just obvious. And uh-huh. so that's what I really strive is that yeah. when people get the concept, it's just obvious. I mean, and yeah. the other thing is, uh, I have a great belief that the reader is the research. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is that I talk to the reader to just have them identify that they already know this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're just bringing it out of them. Yeah. yeah. I'm just allowing to them the... to connect it in a way that they haven't connected it before or to uh, you yeah. know, use that as a way of, uh, of making sense of a lot of their experiences. And so I'm mm-hmm. very axiomatic. I mean, that's, I lead a very, I, I'm a happy guy who leads a very axiomatic life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it is um, been uh, a pleasure for me to kind of hear you lay this out from beginning to current. Um, and I learned today. a lot. By the way, this was very useful for me because I no one has ever asked me this question before. So, well, I, I appreciate that. I, I really am finding so much. Uh, I'm learning a lot every, every time I do this, and I'm seeing. Uh, over and over again, how it all makes sense and how it's all there for us to use. And, you know, that's kind of what I've seen in hearing your story today, that you've used these experiences that you had in life at every step, you know, from the curiosity, learning from adults, from finding the counterintuitive stuff in the military, from the, the theater to the writing. I mean, all of it. including what didn't go well, including the hard stuff. You have solved key life uh, problems by using your own life Mm -hmm. as the the guide. And I I really think that's there and available for all of us and really critical. You can serve other people by using your own life as the guide. And that's what I hear from you. And it's certainly, again, been, you know, very impactful for me and many others. And Dan, I'll just give you a chance to share any final thoughts um, for uh, before we wrap up. No, I would say, again, uh, that uh, for anybody who wants to follow up, I think that the gap in the gain, fortunately, we have it in a, uh, you know, in its best form yet with uh, my collaborator, Ben, Ben Hardy, who is, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's got his doctorate in psychology and he uh, has an enormous amount of psychological knowledge that supports, you know, my stuff just comes from conversations. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so, but he gives enormous amount of support and he's able to connect uh, things. And, uh, and so his book, The Gap in the Gain, and and, you know, uh, Brett, uh, uh, we have this two-minute video that just kind of shows it from beginning to end. And uh, it would be a great favor to me to if you would just send the, uh, to, you know, send the link out to your contact list. And, you know, Elon, when you send this interview out, uh, uh, you absolutely two minutes. Yeah. And uh, I, I find that everybody who reads the book wants to share it with 20 other people who they can see are measuring their progress in a way that doesn't make them happy. Yeah. Well, we will definitely add um, that video link and um, uh, links to your podcast and, and all of the places where people can find you in the show notes and include it in our next newsletter. 
Dan, um, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I've enjoyed it. And uh, just uh, I'm very grateful for all that you are in my life and, and in the world. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.